Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. In this week's episode we'll be delving into the life of a woman who wouldn't let gender get in the way of what she wanted to do with her life. The main character in our story today is a woman called Phoebe Hessel, and she was born in 1713, but died in 1821. And what else was happening in 1821? Well, John Constable completes his painting, The Haywane. On the 28th of May, the National Census is the first to measure age, distribution, and reveals that almost half of the population is under 20 years of age. Over the preceding decade in England and Wales, the population has increased by 18%. On the 19th of July, George IV is crowned King of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. His estranged wife, Caroline of Brunswick, is turned away from the coronation ceremony. This is the last coronation at which the full ceremony of the King's champion is carried out. And on December 17th, Kentucky abolishes debtors' prisons. In fact, 1821 sounds quite liberal to when we start our story in 1713, which was a time when women were expected to stay home, pursue domestic work, or marry. It was a time when women were defined and controlled by men they were related to and the ones they associated with. March 1713 was a time when the actions of a woman can impact and reflect poorly on the family and a woman pursuing a career was unheard of. In March 1713 in Stepney, the girl Phoebe Hessel was born Phoebe Smith and was baptised at the local church St Dunstan's on the 13th of April 1713. Word of the Week For this week's Word of the Week, I give you Doom Scrolling, which is Australia's Word of the Year for 2020. Now, if you didn't know what it was, I only just found it on uh, Twitter when it came up on my feed this morning. 
It's the act of consuming a large quantity of negative online news, typically without pause. There are various suggestions about why Phoebe, at the age of 15, wanted to pursue a career as a soldier. This was a time when women and girls didn't have careers, and a girl serving as a soldier was unheard of. The explanations why Phoebe joined the army vary. They include following her father, who was a soldier, and took her with him when she was a child, so that he could look after her after the death of her mother. Phoebe's father had to disguise her as a boy so that she could go with him. He taught her to play the fife and drum, and as she grew up, Phoebe became a soldier. Another version had Phoebe falling in love with a soldier by the name of Samuel Golding when she was 15 years old and following him into war. She enlisted in the 5th Regiment of Foot to serve alongside her lover and served as a soldier in the West Indies and Gibraltar. One story tells of her secret being revealed based on the evidence of a sergeant of the 13th Light Dragoons. It is said that Phoebe was sentenced to the lash for some breach of discipline. Her sex was revealed when she took off her shirt, but she just said, Strike and be damned! In the end, she was given no punishment, but her salary was paid out to the other soldiers. Another version states that Phoebe and Golding fought and were wounded in the Battle of Fontenoy, Belgium, in 1745. Phoebe received a bayonet wound to her arm. Finally, she revealed her position to the wife of the regiment's colonel, and they were both discharged, and then went on to get married. They lived in Plymouth for the next 20 years, where they had nine children, of whom eight died in infancy. And the survivor died at sea. After Golding died, she moved to Brighton to marry a fisherman named Thomas Hessel. He died when she was 80 years old. When her husband Thomas died, Phoebe bought a donkey and supported herself by selling fish in and around Brighton. And later on, her evidence was instrumental in securing the conviction and execution of high women Edward Howell and James Rook. The crook by the name of Edward Howell, who was a tailor by trade, undertook the robbery of the mail coach at Goldstone Bottom, which is now in Hove, but then it was a lonely crossroads in the South Downs. And his accomplice was James Rook. They had heard that a local farmer was about to receive a large sum of money in Brighton. They stole some horses to commit the deed and stopped the mailboy, taking all he had and destroying the letters. Rook bragged to his friends about his involvement in the heist at the Red Line showroom and was overheard by Phoebe. The two highwaymen were arrested for the robbery of half a sovereign from John Stevenson, who was the boy delivering the mail. Phoebe's testimony led to the capturing of Rook and his accomplice. They were tried and found guilty at the Spring Assizes at Horsham and sentenced to death. They arrived at the execution site in an open cart which was placed under the gallows and the ropes put around their necks. At the last moment, Howell proclaimed to the surrounding crowds whilst pointing at Rook. Good people, I have nothing more to say than to declare my extreme sorrow for having been the instigation of that poor fellow's ultimate fate. I dragged him into the commission of the crime for which we are both about to make our ignominious exit. 
nothing could have afforded me greater comfort in my last moments than to have made the awful change alone. I petitioned the judge on behalf of Rook, but to no purpose. I therefore beg that you will pray for our departing souls. Then the cart was driven away, leaving the men to hang. This took place on the 26th of April, 1793, before a crowd alleged to be 14,000 strong at the Goldstone. After the two guilty men were hanged, the bodies were saturated in tar and enclosed in a gibbet, an iron frame with the chains fastened to the bodies. To make the story more grisly, after stormy nights, Rook's mother would climb to the downs and remove pieces of dislodged corpse for interment in Old Shoreham Churchyard, burying her boy one piece at a time. Local news just in. Steve Robinson from Bradley Stoke has just declared that his dad told him to invest money in bonds. So he bought 100 copies of Goldfinger. Book of the Week. Now, for this week's offering, I give you Unsolved Murders of Women in Victorian London by Jan Bonderson. When discussing unsolved murders of women in late Victorian London, most people think of Jack the Ripper, the Whitechapel murderer, whose exploits were spawned the creation of a small library of books. But Jack the Ripper was just one of a string of phantom murderers whose unsolved slayings outraged late Victorian Britain. The mysterious Cannon Street, Great Corum Street, Euston Square and West Ham murderers were also talked about with bated breath. And like Jack the Ripper's crimes, these were never solved. Phoebe Hessel was well known on sight. She wore a brown dress, a white apron which was always clean, a black cloth cloak with a hood and a large red handkerchief with white spots. Her headdress was a black bonnet which she wore over a mob cap. Her shoes were plain and simple, and she wore long woolen mittens on her hands. She used a strong walking stick made of oak. In old age, she sold small items such as oranges and gingerbread, as well as pincushions and toys on the corner of Marine Parade and Old Stein, and was much visited by people wanting to hear her talk about her life. She became well known in Brighton due to her great age and unusual experiences. As she grew old, though, she became sick and blind, and she had to go to the workhouse for some time. Somehow, though, George, Prince of Wales, who would later become Prince Regent, and then George IV, as he would often visit Brighton, and the place that later became called the Royal Pavilion, he got to know the story of the old woman peddler, who told tales of fooling the army and living the rough and tumble life and always happy to be distracted with a good story, the prince decided to pay the formidable Phoebe a pension of half a guinea a week from 1808, thus saving her from the workhouse. <laughs> 
At this, she reportedly said, Half a guinea a week will make me as happy as a princess. And the prince never forgot her. She was brought in a horse and carriage to coronation celebrations when he became King George IV in 1821. Later that year, though, she became very unwell and went visited by a curious student of human nature as she lay on her deathbed. Phoebe talked much of the past and seemed proud of having kept her secret when in the army. She said... For you know, sir, a drunken man and a child always tell the truth. But I told my story to the ground. I dug a hole that would hold a gallon and whispered it there. Phoebe was 108 when she died, and she was buried in the graveyard of St Nicholas Church in Brighton. Her gravestone reads... In memory of Phoebe Hessel, who was born at Stepney in the year 1713. She served for many years as a private soldier in the 5th Regiment of Foot in different parts of Europe, and in the year 1745 fought under the command of the Duke of Cumberland at the Battle of Fontenoy, where she received a bayonet wound in her arm. Her long life, which commenced in the time of Queen Anne, extended to the reign of George IV, by whose munificence she received and support in her latter years. Died at Brighton, where she had long resided, 12 December 1821, aged 108 years. The Northumberland Fusiliers, successors to the 5th Regiment of Foot, had her grave restored in the 1970s, and most years a poppy is left on her grave on Remembrance Sunday. She was sometimes referred to as the Stepney Amazon. Amazon Street and Hessel Street, both named in her honour, still exist today in Stepney, now part of the London borough of Tower Hamlets. She saw the reigns of all the Georges. Her extraordinary story brought her a pension from the King and a place in one of Tennyson's poems, Rizpah. And one of the many ways Brighton remembers her 107 and 412 Brighton and Hove buses bear the name Phoebe Hessel in her honour. Back in the day facts. And this week we start off with the 9th of January, when, in 1799, income tax was introduced into the UK at a rate of 10%, which was two shillings in the pound, supposedly as a temporary measure to fund the Neapolitan Wars. Also on the 9th of January, but in 1806, Lord Nelson, the English Admiral and hero of the Battle of Trafalgar, was buried in St Paul's Cathedral, on the 10th of January in 1984, for the first time in over a hundred years, the USA and the Vatican established full diplomatic relations. On the 11th of January 1935, US aviator Amelia Earhart 
began the trip from Hawaii to California that would make her the first woman to fly solo across the Pacific Ocean. On the 12th of January in 2003, English pop singer with the Bee Gees, Maurice Gibb, passed away. Also on the 12th of January in 1866, the Royal Aeronautical Society was inaugurated as the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain. Also on the 12th of January, Elvis Presley recorded All Shook Up in a studio in California, USA. News just in. A man goes into a bookshop and asks the woman for a book about turtles. She said, hardback? And he said, yeah, with little heads. It's the Dad in a Rock podcast. This is Sean. And this is Chris. Join us every week as we give you the dad's point of view on pop culture. And stumbling our way through fatherhood. <laughs> Dad jokes. Star Wars. Streaming. Tech news. Movie news. Listen to lifelong pals tell stories from past and present. Cruise with us into the cheesy every week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast platforms. And as always, find past episodes and links to our social media pages on dadnarock.com. And now it's coming close to the end of our show. But don't worry, you can still get in touch with me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. And I have to say a huge thank you to Michelle in America, who sent me a lovely message saying how much this show has helped her through 2020. And getting messages like that makes it all worthwhile. I also have to say a huge thank you to the people who lent their voices to make this week's story extra special. And you are treated to the vocal talents of Emma Cleave and Simon Green from Bradley Stoke Radio as well as Becky Vicker from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol. I bet you thought that was the end of the show. Well, I've got a special podcast exclusive for you of an extra story. A few months ago, I was asked if I could find any interesting stories about an area of Bristol called St George, and this following one is what I came up with. On the 16th of August, 1898, Mr A Baker, Deputy Coroner, held an inquest at the Fire Engine Hotel in Church Road, St George, Bristol, on the death of Isaac Alsbury, a labourer aged 51, who died on Monday, 15th of August, two days before. Mr Essay was present on behalf of the deceased's widow and son, and Mr Challenger, traffic manager, watched the hearing for the Bristol Tramway and Carriage Company. Isaac Osbury Jr., a dock labourer and the son of the deceased who lived with his parents in Blacksworth Road, identified the body. Frank Pierce, a hay and straw dealer, stated that on the previous morning he was driving his own six-year-old horse and a dilly, a cart with no sides, but just a flat open barred floor, down Blacksworth Road, intending to go to Hannam for a load of hay. 
Isaac was with him, sitting on the back of the dilly, with his feet dangling over the edge, enjoying the ride and pleasant weather. Both men were sober and neither had taken anything. All was well in their world. When they arrived at the junction with Church Road, the main road that goes through St George, Frank turned right to go towards Hannam, and he was not going faster than three miles an hour. He tried to get across the road at a slower walking pace when one of the electric tram cars came down the hill and straight at him. It struck the box of the wheel on the right-hand side and the wheel was thrown off. This caused Alsbury to be thrown from the cart. When Frank realised what had happened, he looked back and saw Alsbury under the tram. He was face down and his head was between the two electric lines and his feet were projecting over the line nearest to him. The tram driver tried in vain to back the car off Alsbury, but in the end, the gathering crowd lifted the car off of Isaac Alsbury and there was no doubt that he was dead. The tram driver said that he was doing about eight miles an hour when he saw the car and had put his brakes on as soon as he could and Frank hadn't heard the tram coming straight for him. Joseph Bennett, a mason's labourer, was a passenger in a car heading towards Kingswood, the same direction as the cart. He said he saw the hay cart walking straight across the road before turning right and the tram he was in stopped to let it through. He could tell that the other tram driver was trying to stop as he could hear the squeal of the brakes and see them skidding. The right side of the tram car caught the tail end of the cart and with Alsbury having nothing to hold on to, he tumbled off and fell in front of the tram. He was caught by the netting in front of the car. The driver of that fateful tram, Edward Donoghue, said that he had left Kingswood at 6.55am and on reaching Cosham Road, he had stopped to pick up a lady passenger. Edward had been driving for eight years and had been on that particular route for ten months. He then restarted the car and carried on when he saw a horse coming out of Blackswath Road right in front of him. He immediately applied the brakes and rang the gong to try and alert the cart driver. That was when Frank Pierce was really trying his hardest to get the horse to move faster, but unfortunately the horse had practically stopped. The actual impact, he said, wasn't that hard, but it did cause Alsbury to fall off and he saw him go under the tram. As a rule, the gong should always have been rung when passing a side street. After the coroner had summed up the evidence, the jury returned a verdict of accidental death. And now it is truly the end of this episode. This podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelled K-O hyphen F-I. 
Some more great news for you. If you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tierpublic.com. Search for the Backtracker History Show and you'll find lots of things to choose from. If you'd like to get in touch with me with an idea for a show or a comment, then you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. In our next episode, we will be featuring some heroes from the Western Supermare Blitz. But until then, take care guys and look after each other.